The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. I want to wish everyone a happy new year and thank you for listening to The Blunt Post with Vic this past year as our country and the world went through countless tragedies, challenges, and surprises. I would also like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this program would not be possible. Ricky is an incredible person to work with and I am grateful for him. I wish everyone a healthy, successful, and happy 2021. Now, today after the headlines, I have two interviews for you. First, I chat with John Katz, who is the president of the Santa Monica Democratic Club, and he is also running to be a delegate for the California Assembly District 50 in the upcoming elections. And after that, you will hear my interview with Senator Bob Menendez from New Jersey. Here are some headlines from over the weekend and this morning. President Donald Trump pushed Georgia's Secretary of State to find votes to overturn the election results after his loss to President-elect Biden, according to an audio recording of a phone call obtained by the Washington Post. In excerpts of the stunning one-hour phone call Saturday, Trump lambasted his fellow Republican for refusing to falsely say that he won the election in Georgia and repeatedly touted baseless claims of election fraud. California reported Sunday that 45,352 people newly tested positive for COVID-19, continuing a surge that has pushed hospitals and their exhausted staff to the brink. Cases have skyrocketed since Thanksgiving and impacts from Christmas and New Year's celebrations are still unfolding. As of Sunday, more than 20.4 million people have been infected with the virus in the U.S. and at least 350,000 people have died, according to data from Johns Hopkins University. The U.S. ramped up COVID-19 vaccinations in the past few days after a slower than expected start bringing the number of shots dispensed to about 4 million, government health officials said on Sunday. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious diseases expert, also said on ABC's This Week that President-elect Joe Biden's pledge to administer 100 million shots of the vaccine within his first 100 days in office is achievable. And he rejected President Trump's false claims on Twitter that coronavirus deaths and cases in the U.S. have been greatly exaggerated. You know, Chuck, it could and likely will get worse in the next couple of weeks or at least maintain this very terribly high level of infections and deaths that we're seeing. And the reason is that, you know, we're in that situation that we predicted a few weeks ago as you get into the holiday season and people have done a considerable amount of traveling there's been congregate settings where people innocently and understandably were gathering for social and family uh, get-togethers uh, against the uh, advice of, of public health officials like myself, even though it's very difficult to do that when you have a family-oriented season. And then you have the cold weather, people doing things indoors much more than outdoors. 
And this is what happens. It, it, it's, it's terrible, it's unfortunate, but it was predictable that we were gonna see the number of cases that we're seeing now. My concern is that it could get worse over the next couple of weeks as we see the lag that happens when an event occurs like the Christmas and New Year's holiday, you usually have a couple of week lag before you see an additional uptick of cases, which is always followed by hospitalizations and deaths. So things right. are bad enough as they are right now with the numbers that you mentioned, which are really terrible, but it could get worse. <clears throat> Rather than sit back and throw up our hands and say, oh my goodness, it's getting worse. We need to double down on some of the fundamental things that we talk about all the time. A series of earthquakes have been shaking Croatia. The strongest was a magnitude 6.4. At least seven people were killed and dozens were injured after the earthquake struck central Croatia on Tuesday, according to the U.S. Geological Survey and Croatian officials. The Croatian government on Wednesday declared January 2nd a national day of mourning and opened a state treasury account for help helping those affected by Tuesday's earthquake. I wrote a report about this catastrophe in The Blunt Post, which includes information for those who wish to donate to help. If you'd like to read the article, please visit thebluntpost.com. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. For Let's Get Blunt today, I want to talk about celebrities and what they do or don't do with the platform that they have. Now, to me, what a celebrity is, is someone that we celebrate. So someone who just happens to be, um, or just have some notoriety or 15 seconds of fame does not really mean they're a celebrity. I also want to make it clear that I don't necessarily think that people who are famous owe anyone anything in terms of using their platform. It's great that they do, most of them do, but I don't think that they owe anyone anything, nor do I have any expectations. However, in my sort of, my perspective, what's happened in the last 10 plus years or so, there are fewer and fewer celebrities who are willing to be the trailblazers, if you will, or mavericks in fighting for uh, social justice issues, to be an activist, and to take on a cause. You know, one of the exceptions that comes to mind, someone who is truly a hero, although he has taken a lot of heat, is um, Colin Kaepernick. You know, this great athlete who believes in the social justice and, and the injustice of police brutality against uh black people, uh, anti-black racism, and who risked his own career, took a lot of ridicule from haters, and started this sort of revolution, this, uh, this great um, movement. But he's a rarity and he's an exception. Another person who takes a lot of heat because she's constantly discredited for uh, you know, just being a reality star is Kim Kardashian. When most people just sort of sit back, talk, and criticize, she has been working tirelessly um, for prison reform 
and she's done whatever she could. Of course, she can't solve it by herself, nor, you know, she tries to or anything like that. But she has helped one person at a time. She's helped people to get off death row, and she has done whatever she could in her capacity with her platform. Where are those celebrities? Where are those people that take on something that they believe in, regardless of what the popular consensus is? Now, I'll tell you what makes me think of this. You know, most most of you know that on September 27th, Azerbaijan and Turkey carried out an, a genocidal assault and ethnic cleansing against Armenians of Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh. And I co-produced this PSA campaign with celebrities to bring attention to this issue because there was not much press on it. And although we were able to get Kim Kardashian, Serge Tankian, Ed Begley Jr., Sally Kirkland, Congressman Schiff, I was disappointed to see that there wasn't, you know, there were some of the celebrities that I reached out to uh, didn't respond and did not want to do it. And that's disappointing. And Cher was one of them. But uh, after taking some heat, she ended up doing a PSA, not the one that we co-produced, but uh, she did one nonetheless. It makes me think of an icon, not just a celebrity, but an icon that was Elizabeth Taylor. Now, in 1980, 81, 82, in the early 80s, when HIV and AIDS made the news, and most people didn't know what it was, and they were very afraid of it, it was called the gay plague. There was a lot of stigma attached. Of course, this was a time when there was a lot more homophobia in the world, and people were afraid of HIV and AIDS. Even scientists and doctors didn't know too much about it and how it was transmitted, and everyone stayed away. Celebrities and elected officials, etc. It took Ronald Reagan four years to say the word AIDS, or the term AIDS, in 1985. So the president would not even address this this incredible epidemic, this tragedy that was happening, killing tens of thousands of people until 1985. But what Elizabeth Taylor did was really, truly incredible. She was already a superstar, naturally. And despite people telling her to just stay away and not touch this topic because it was just you know, there was too much stigma attached and it would hurt her career, her image, etc., she didn't care about any of that. What she cared about is that she had friends who were dying, who were sick, and there was no cure, there was no treatment, and she was going to do whatever she could. And there's a famous phone conversation that took place between she and Liza Minnelli, out of which uh, AMFAR was founded, the American Foundation for AIDS Research, which uh, Elizabeth Taylor co-founded. And later she went on to create the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation. She also didn't care about doctors telling her that she can't go to the hospital and visit her friends. This was a time when some doctors and nurses were even refusing to work with AIDS patients, and those that were were wearing hazmat suits because they didn't know how it was transmitted. But Elizabeth Taylor did not want to see and visit her friends in the hospital wearing hazmat suits. So she would go to hospitals to see not just her friends, but other people who were suffering from HIV and AIDS. She would hug them and touch them and kiss them, despite so-called experts telling her not to. And she started fundraising. And 
I remember watching a, a, an interview with her when she talked about having called a lot of her friends, celebrity friends, asking for help, asking for to fund the foundation for a cure, and a lot of them would not touch it, would not want to help. We need more Elizabeth Taylors. We need more people like that. We need more celebrities who are willing to take causes and issues and topics, not because they are in vogue, not because everyone else is doing it, not because it's a good PR move, but because they believe in it and they are their principles matter more than what career risk they could be taking. Now, of course, at the end, Elizabeth Taylor's career didn't take any hits and her career, her image is you know, beyond, she's iconic. So we, we really need more people like that. We need, and we also need to honor and be grateful for people like Colin Kaepernick and Kim Kardashian. And there are others too. Those are not just, you know, those two are not the only ones. The ones that really, you know, talk the talk and walk the walk and put their money where their mouth is and um, are examples to all of us. So yeah, as much as I, I love our celebrities and, uh, you know, they, they make a part of, a big part of the Americana, the American culture, but we should be honest and blunt about where we are with some of them. So there it is. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. John Katz has served as the president of the Santa Monica Democratic Club since 2017, and he has been a member of the club since 2010. He's also an elected delegate to the California Democratic Party, where he serves on the Affirmative Action Committee. Additionally, John is the vice chair of the Westside Democratic Headquarters, which provided the grassroots army of volunteers that flipped seven House seats in California in 2018. John is now running to be a California Assembly delegate for District 50, which happens this month. Good morning, John. Thank you for being on the Blunt Post with Vic this morning, and Happy New Year. Hey, good morning. Happy New Year. Glad to be in 2021 now. Yes, a lot to (laughs) look forward to and a lot to sort of a lot of unknowns, but I'm sure it'll be better than 2020. Yes, exactly. Well, we have a new president coming in a few days and uh, uh, opportunity to work on our democratic and progressive values. So that's always good news. Absolutely. So as I usually do, I want to ask you a general question as to, because I spoke to you about maybe a month or two months ago, but as of now, what's your perspective on 2021? What's behind us? what's coming up in the state of our nation. Totally, totally. Well, I mean, 2020 was a big year and so much happened, but the good news is we got Trump out and we now have just a few days to go until Biden is sworn in. And the key thing we have to do now in this immediate future is Um, push the Biden administration to make sure that it holds true to our progressive values. Um, You know, Biden got elected with a big majority of Americans from all different backgrounds, um, moderates, Republicans, and progressives and Democrats, and we need to make sure that he's listening to our part of that 
coalition when he's moving forward with uh, how we're going to, you know, recover from COVID and get these vaccines distributed and fix our economy and turn things around so that we're not uh, setting ourselves up for the next emergency virus or, or whatever it may be um, that we're actually moving forward and uh, learning lessons from everything that's happened, not just in the past year, but in the past four years and before that. Yeah, well said. Perhaps bring back the pandemic task force that uh, create, that was created that, by President Obama. That would be smart, wouldn't it? Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, it's safe to say we'll be bringing that back and hopefully a lot more. I mean, you know, uh, it almost seems so simplistic to say it, but just having a president and an administration who listens to science and responds accordingly based on what we need to do to keep uh, our people safe is going to be a big step in the right direction for <laughs> being prepared for the next one. And there will definitely be a next one. I mean, that's the thing we have to be cognizant of here is as we get people vaccinated over the next few weeks and months, that's great, but there's going to be the next version of this, and, and we really need to be ready so that we can respond and react much sooner and have a much more uh, nimble economy that's able to respond to these types of crises and whatever comes in the future. Absolutely, and our work is definitely not done. We're just kind of beginning, and uh, you have been Absolutely. very active. Yeah, I've been saying since the, since the beginning that since Trump first got elected, you know, getting him out of office was only going to be the halftime because right. we we now have to take the actions that would have stopped Trump from the beginning. Democracy reforms and other, you know, codifying these norms that have been violated to make them into law so that uh, if the future holds that another Republican Trump type of person gets elected to the presidency, we have a better mechanism to restrain them from the worst instincts. Luckily, with Trump, the big mechanism to restrain him was his own incompetence and stupidity. But it's very possible that the next person, whether it's Tom Cotton or you know, Ron DeSantis or any of these other Trump acolytes getting into power, we need to make sure that, that they are restrained by the law. Yeah, and absolutely. so I really hope that, that that was one of the first things we do is figure out how we can make a lot of those norms into law. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with John Katz, the president of the Santa Monica Democratic Club. So, John, you, you, know, you have many roles and are very active in politics and uh, social justice, uh, but I also wanted to talk about the upcoming Assembly District elections. Yeah, uh, yeah. You're on a slate of... Uh, I believe there are 14 of you on a progressive slate, um, mm -hmm. which includes our mutual friend, Seppi Shine, who's a council member yes, for West yeah, Hollywood. So glad that we were able to recruit her to be on the slate with us this year. So this is actually my fifth or sixth time running for, for a delegate. And so it's actually 
been uh, a lot of I've had a lot of experiences, good and bad, doing this thing. Um, but every two years, uh, the California Democratic Party holds 80 elections, one in each assembly district around the state. And they do it in the January right after the general election. So it's coming up uh, in just a couple of couple of days and weeks here. Each district elects seven self-identified female and seven other than self-identified female or male or whatever you want to call it. Um, so 14 people total with, with a gender equality. And um, it started off uh, many years ago being a very small insider election where o- only a few people would vote and it would basically be you know, a handful of Democratic club presidents or something that would get elected. And over the past 10, 15 years, it's slowly grown bigger and bigger to the point where there's now multiple slates running in every district, uh, you know, dozens of candidates running in each district around the state. And in our district here, Assembly District 50, which is the west side, uh, we have three full slates running and also a bunch more people who aren't running with a group. They're just running on their own. So we have over 50 candidates running for this position. It's pretty, uh, wow. Very competitive. pretty intense. Very competitive. So let me, let's just sort of make it very simple. If, sure. if someone doesn't even know anything about this, right, and I'm sure there are people who don't, why should, why should they care? Definitely. Well, so the, the position of a delegate is um, basically the the California Democratic Party is made up of delegates. And so when you hear about the party endorsing somebody and you get angry that they endorsed some, a too moderate candidate or the opposite, um, two years ago, the party came out and endorsed Kevin DeLeon instead of Dianne Feinstein for Senate. So sometimes we make very progressive endorsements. Sometimes uh, we may, you know, endorse the incumbents or whatever. These decisions are made by delegates, and and there's about three thousand delegates around the state. Um, they come from equally from all around different de- assembly districts, and we vote on endorsements for the candidates who are running. So, for example. If Ted Lieu were to become a member of the Biden administration, we would have uh, an open seat there, and it would become it would become up to the delegates to vote on who should be endorsed by the Democratic Party to fill that position. And the same thing in the Assembly and and the State Senate. And so that's one aspect of it. But then there's also um, the, the party platform. So what does it mean to be a Democrat? That's something that's always changing. And we're always updating the party platform. You know, when single payer started becoming more popular, the, the party platform changed from saying public option to saying single payer healthcare, and uh, other things like that, you know, moving the party in a more progressive direction. And, and that is something that the delegates do. And if we have a very moderate set of delegates, then the party ends up supporting more mild legislation, more mild resolutions, and the platform gets weakened. But when we have a year where 
uh, progressives get elected up and down the ballot around the state, and we have lots and lots of progressives in the base of the party, then that's when we can really do amazing things to lead as California Democrats, which California Democrats typically do lead the way uh, on progressive policies. And so the way we do that is every two years with this election, we get as many progressives as we can to go out and vote for their progressive delegates to be elected, to fill out all these positions so that when it comes time for the party to make decisions, we're making the most progressive decisions. Um, That was a very, very detailed and uh, just well-said description. And uh, just to make it even simpler, basically, for all of us, and I'm putting myself included, is, you know, when we when we rant about decisions that are made in the state, and we we think, why did they do this? Why did they pick that person? This is our chance to go out and vote <laughs> uh, instead of just ranting and being passive exactly. about it. Exactly. So exactly, it's so rare that you get a chance to say who and uh, what direction you want the Democratic Party to take. Yeah. And this is the real opportunity that we all have every two years to go out and say. You know, looking at this list of people, I know that these 14 people are the ones who I want to represent me in the party. So if you look at our progressive slate, you know, you mentioned Seppi Shine. You know, she is someone who I definitely can't wait to bring into this world where she, where she can be part of our Democratic Party. Um, the mayor of Santa Monica, Sue Himmelrich, is on our slate. She She's also, I mean, she is an absolute star here in Santa Monica in terms of building more affordable housing. Our, you know, we have such a great slate of, of candidates um, that, are, that are running with us that will that have some of them have been on the slate already and were delegates in the last time around. Um, you know, we have a couple of people on our slate, Carolyn Terosis and Jennifer Barraza, who uh, were on the slate last time around, and they got appointed to be on the platform committee of the party. So they actually had a direct say in some of the specific details of our party platform, um, meaning that we got to, you know, our progressive slate here in AD50 had a direct say in what it means to be a progressive Democrat in California. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with John Katz, the president of the Santa Monica Democratic Club. John, something tells me that people are very curious to know when the election is. Um, I know that... That's a good point, yeah. <laughs> I, I know that, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, to do a mail-in ballot, you have to register by... January 11th, I believe. That's right. Yeah. So it's a little different from usual this year because in the past it has been all in person. And so you, it's almost like an Iowa caucus or something where you actually have to pack in a gym or a library room or something. And the line goes out the door with a thousand people. And this time around, it's going to be so much easier. All you have to do to register in this election is go to ademelections.com and you have until January 11th, so just about a week or so left to go. Mm -hmm. Um, ademelections.com, you fill out your name, your address, your birth date, 
um, and it matches that with your voter registration files. So as long as that matches up, then you're all set and they will mail you a ballot in the mail with a prepaid postage return envelope. So you can fill out your ballot and send it back. And when is the deadline to send it back? The deadline to send it back is January 27th. So you okay. fill this form out online by the 11th, and then they will send you that in the mail, your ballot, and you just send it right back. Okay. So just to, to clarify for people listening, just because you registered to vote this past November for the presidential elections does not mean that you are registered to vote for the in this election, ADEM election. Right. So, so for this, so you this, have to go. Right. So register. when you register to vote normally, that's for all public elections, such as the one in this past November. But this election that's coming up for the for the uh, ADEM elections that we're talking about here is a private election of uh, people who are registered to vote in this election. So one of the key things that we had to do as candidates is reach out to all of our supporters and let everybody know to make sure you register by January 11th to get this ballot, because then that's the limit. That's that's how many people can vote is however many people have signed up by the 11th. And, you know, admittedly, I've never voted for the uh, for the ADEM and I'm going to this year. So I just want to clarify this. You people that get to vote, you only get to vote for the for the district in which you live in. That's right. Right. Yeah. And you are on a slate in District 50, which is the west side of L.A. Yeah. So District 50 uh, is Richard Bloom's Assembly District, and it covers Santa Monica, West Hollywood, Beverly Hills, Malibu, Bel Air, um, parts of Hollywood, Miracle Mile, parts of Mid-City L.A. Um, so just a, a lot of the west side area. Yeah. And uh, however, this is going on across the state. So if you live in California, you can go to ademelections.com and you can still register to vote uh, and you can still vote in your district. And we actually have a website, um, progressiveslates.org, and that lists out all the progressive slates around the state. So there's 80 oh, districts. Um, there's 80 districts right now, and uh, we... We don't have them all filled out, but, you know, who the organizers of the progressive slate. See, this is part of a statewide effort to get progressives elected uh, as delegates. So all the different progressive slates around the state are working together to make sure that we tell our friends, hey, listen, like if, if uh, I have a friend who lives up in the Bay Area, I might tell them, hey, you know, there's this great group of progressives who are running up there. You can vote for them since you can't vote for me. And so the same thing is true down here. If you know somebody, you know, if, you, if you're listening to this and you live on the east side, you can vote in your election. Maybe it's District 51 or District 43. But then you can also tell your friends who live on the west side, hey, there's a progressive slate out there, too, and you can vote for them. Say that um, the URL for the progressive slate website. Sure, it's progressiveslates.org. Okay, progressiveslates.org. Yep. Fantastic. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with John Katz, the president of the Santa Monica Democratic Club.
Well, I hope that everyone, regardless of whether you live in District 50 or not, you would exercise this. We've been on a been on a good note voting out Trump. So let's let's keep it there, and uh, you know, just keep working at getting our country back. And um, I also wanted to ask you, just sort of segue to Georgia, which the election is yeah. tomorrow. I know, I know. And so, ask you what you think of that. Well, I'll tell you that um, I, I decided that for right now I'm keeping all polls with a very big grain of salt. I don't, not to say they're not accurate, but I don't think we can use them to tell within one point or something like that. I think we have to see it as a little bit of a, you know, three or four point wiggle room there. So with that said, I would say it looks close. Um, I don't think we can say with polling for sure that there's an edge one way or the other. But if you look at the situation holistically and you see how Donald Trump has been dispiriting his base for the past several weeks, talking about how the governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state of Georgia are rhinos and they don't really support Trump. And uh, there's, you know, the, the election's rigged. We're seeing Trump supporters in Georgia saying don't vote because the election's rigged. And so I don't want to get too optimistic here, but I think that they have a very dispirited base. And we have a very excited base, especially in Georgia. I mean, Imagine if you were a Democrat in Georgia for your whole life and you just finally flipped it blue for the first time. Right. You know, that and, and we're hearing about people who are registering to vote who didn't even vote in November. And you have to ask yourself, who is the type of person who wouldn't vote in November but would vote in this runoff? And I think that the answer is People who thought, oh, I live in Georgia, forget about it, uh, you know, this is a red state, and then saw what happened, and now they're saying, I got to get out there and, and vote in this election because the control of the Senate is at stake. And Kudos to them. It's never too late. Right, right, right. And we're seeing, I mean, what happened with the $2,000 checks package, uh, I mean, it is almost as if Donald Trump is trying to sabotage this election so maybe he wants to take the whole party down with him who knows but at the end of the day it is georgia so i'm i I, i'm afraid to make any big predictions but um, i'm optimistic looking at the overall scenario that i I think we have a real chance of winning these races and if we do then we can finally get rid of mitch mcconnell yeah and uh have a have a real shot at at um, passing meaningful legislation. Absolutely, I'm glad to hear that from you. So, John, um, before I let you go, I just if you have anything else to add or call to action aside from people going to register for the the ADEM, which is ADEM elections, go ahead. Tell yeah, us. I mean, just as a general plug, I would say. The best way that you can personally get more involved in local politics is to join your local Democratic club. So I'm the president of the Santa Monica Democratic Club, but there's other clubs all around L.A., 
all around California and really all around the country that you can join. And people join these clubs. I mean, I joined my club 10 years ago and slowly worked my way up. But there are people who joined last year of our club who are going to be, you know, asked to join our board next year. So it's always about finding these organizations, getting involved. And that is how we do this work from the bottom up is we start by taking very localized clubs like a Santa Monica club and make that a progressive powerhouse. And then we can use that organization to push the state party. And then we can use that to push the national party and eventually get progressive legislation to pass. So it really does start from the ground up. I can't say it enough. I hope everybody joins a democratic club this year as we look forward to pushing Biden and keeping the progressive movement uh, well alive in his administration that, you know, get involved, get engaged with your local democratic groups and let's do this. Fantastic. Well, John, uh, thank you and good luck to you. Uh, the election. Uh, we'll Thanks, know. Vic. We'll Always know great the, to talk to you. You as well. I'm sure we'll know by the end of the month what happens. I'm, I'm just yeah, guessing. Yeah, let's hope. Let's hope. <laughs> guessing. Well, Happy New Year again, and uh, thanks again, John. Okay, thanks, Vic. That was John Katz, the president of the Santa Monica Democratic Club, who has been on this show several times. Uh, John is now running to be a California Assembly delegate for District 50. It's always good to have you on the show, John. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic. Senator Bob Menendez serves as the ranking member and most senior Democrat of the powerful Senate Foreign Relations Committee that helps shape foreign policy of broad significance in matters of war and peace and international relations. He was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in the 113th Congress, where he led the effort to sanction Russia after they invaded Ukraine. This past December marked the one-year anniversary since the Senate passed Senator Menendez's Armenian Genocide Resolution Bill, which formally recognizes the Armenian Genocide on behalf of the U.S. government. Senator Menendez obtained the unanimous consent of his Senate colleagues to pass his Senate resolution affirming the historical facts of the Armenian Genocide perpetrated by the Ottoman Turks and honoring the memories of its 1.5 million victims. Senator Menendez, how are you, sir? Hi, this is Jeremiah. Yes, sir. Thank you for... How are you? Good. Thank you for being on the show. I'm, I'm a big fan and honored that you would, uh, you would speak with me. Sure. Pleased to do so. Yeah. So, Senator, before I get into the main topic that I wanted to discuss with you, um, I just want to ask you a general question in terms of us as a country, where we are post-election, amid COVID, and looking toward 2021. Mm -hmm. What's your perspective on where we are as a country? Well, we we have uh, a nation uh, for which there are deeply divided views. We have a nation, however, that collectively is faced with the challenge of the worst pandemic in in a century um, and that has ravaged uh, and taken so many lives of loved ones and our communities 
and not only dramatically taken an extraordinary number of lives, but also ravaged our economy uh, and what people have built over the course of a lifetime. And that in and of itself should be something that brings us together in common cause. Um, I, I hope that there is a new beginning the American people chose by an overwhelming number of votes, over nearly six million, uh, President-elect Biden. He is obviously laser-focused on the question of COVID-19 and getting uh, us past the pandemic, uh, recovering economically as well as in our health. Uh, and I hope that that new beginning is also a new beginning in, in bringing people together in common cause and healing some of the deep rifts that exist within our country that has been uh, you know, vividly exposed by uh, the actions of the present administration. Wow. Well said. Thank you for that, Senator. Mm -hmm. So, Senator, you have been a, a champion, to say the least, for so many humanitarian causes, um, including uh, you really spearheaded the recognition of the Armenian Genocide, which, um, which happened about a year ago. And it was, um, it was you know, you co-authored the resolution, the Armenian Genocide Resolution Act, and for about a month you would go on the Senate floor uh, saying that we're not going to leave until this is voted on. And of course, you were able to get, get it passed the Senate unanimously last year. So first, I thank you for that. And uh, the other thing, obviously, I want to talk to you about, which is just something we never thought we'd be here again, what happened uh, on September 27th with uh, this genocidal war and ethnic cleansing that Azerbaijan and Turkey um, perpetuated against Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, and, uh, and its aftermath. Uh, and you've been very vocal about that, too. So before I ask you any specific questions, just want to get your words about how you feel about what happened. Well, you know, first, uh, we're uh, almost celebrating in a few days the uh, historic accomplishment of having the United States Senate by unanimous consent pass my resolution affirming the facts of the Armenian genocide. This is something that I have been working uh, since my time in the House of Representatives and since I entered the Senate in 2006. Uh, and I appreciate that the final passage would not have been possible without the support and commitment of the Armenian American community. As you mentioned, during the, that session of uh, the Senate, I had to go to the floor to call for the, for the passage, not once, not twice, but four times. Each of the first three times, a Republican senator chose to block it. Uh, and finally, on the fourth attempt, the Senate stopped enabling Turkey's lies and the resolution passed by unanimous consent. And it's a victory, I really think, which brings us to the present, for all who value the truth and believe in the words, never again. But here we are, and I'm glad to also have gotten the Library of Congress to change uh, their, their um, volumes and sub on the subject, uh, and in their denial, and now recognize the Armenian Genocide uh, uh, as such. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, for those of us who believe that it was so important not only to recognize the history, but to do so because uh, if, we, if we do not, what has passed is prologue. We are now so alarmed um, and distraught by what is happening uh, in Artsakh, uh, where we have seen the 
incredible devastation um, on the Armenian people in the past few months. Uh, thousands of civilians and, and soldiers have lost their lives. Um, more than half of the population of Nagorno-Karabakh has been driven from their homes. Uh, every day we, we see more videos and hear more reports of atrocities that Azerbaijani soldiers are committing against Armenian POWs and civilians in clear violation of international humanitarian law, to say nothing of basic human decency. And so, you know, my first priority has been responding to the humanitarian crisis uh, that uh, both uh, Erdogan and Aliyev uh, have created. Uh, that's why I, I sent a bipartisan letter to the Appropriations uh, Committee uh, that as they devised the, this present budget, urging them to include funding to address these humanitarian needs, including money to clear the mines and unexploded ordinances like rockets uh, in our government funding bill. And I'm going to be pressing both Congress and the incoming Biden administration to do so as long as it's necessary. Um, I, I also think that it is, um, you know, a disgracefully uh, uh, neglectful that the United States did not engage in uh, trying to end the conflict early, and that lack of engagement was filled by Russia and Turkey. The U.S. should have engaged at the most senior levels before the situation spun out of control. And, um, you know, I believe that the strong U.S. diplomacy at the outset could have prevented this terrible tragedy. Now we are forced uh, with an occupied uh, area uh, where uh, Russia is now has a very thin line of peacekeepers questionable as to how much they're willing really to push back at the end of the day. We're looking at the water supply that our Armenia has that is in this region, now uh, physically in the potential control of the Azerbaijanis. Um, and uh, that's why I believe the United States needs to hold Azerbaijan and Turkey responsible for their aggression and make sure we don't enable future atrocities. And to that end, I've introduced two resolutions that will require the State Department to report on human rights abuses by Azerbaijan and Turkey and on the role that U.S. security assistance and arms transfers may be playing in, in those abuses. And we're working to build support to get those resolutions passed so that we know that uh, this way we can know that the U.S. isn't facilitating these dictators' violent behavior. And those are 754 and 755, correct? Yes. Okay. Thank you for that detailed description and your assessment of what's happening. It's so true and so tragic. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with Senator Bob Menendez from New Jersey. Uh, Senator, the sense that I get from Armenians, both in diaspora as well as Armenia itself, is the world has abandoned them. That how much evidence uh, does the world need to see before anyone acts. I mean, there have been countless videos of uh, Armenians being beheaded alive, uh, as well as others. And these are just ones that were captured by Azerbaijani soldiers. Who knows how many there others have taken place that were not captured. NATO is, you know, one of the organizations that has been very disappointing. The first one, of course, the State Department, you know, Secretary Pompeo didn't really do much about this, but people are questioning NATO's um, role and NATO's uh, lack of, you know, lack of uh, involvement 
uh, and allowing Turkey, a so-called NATO ally, to fuel this and bring uh, all kinds of mercenaries from Syria, Libya, Pakistan, and ISIS to fight this fight. And now they are placing them in occupied uh, Artsakh lands uh, permanently. So what do we not know about NATO and what their role is? Well, of course, the the challenge with NATO is NATO is a a um, a treaty by which the countries who are members to the treaty ultimately uh, have mutual security uh, uh, cooperation and obligations. Of course, Armenia is not part of NATO. Um, however, uh, the reality is it's also based not only on a security basis. But it's also based on certain principles of uh, democracy and human rights. Uh, and in that regard, I have outside of just even the Armenia context on a broader context, although certainly what has happened uh, in uh, Arsakh is uh, a glaring example of what I'm about to say is that NATO uh, has to really reconsider whether Turkey uh, is a reliable NATO ally uh, based upon its actions. Uh, not only what it facilitated uh, in the atrocities uh, in Artsakh, uh, but what it is doing uh, in the Aegean, uh, its disruption in the eastern Mediterranean uh, against uh, uh, Greece and Cyprus, two members of the European Union, in terms of exploring their exclusive economic zones, uh, what it is doing uh, uh, in Libya, uh, which is uh, against the vital national interest, not only the United States, but many other countries that have viewed uh, Turkey's participation there as extremely problematic, what it's done in Syria. I mean, the list, uh, what it is doing to um, holy sites, uh, the challenge that it is providing to uh, the Orthodox Church, I mean, the, the, there are more lawyers uh, and journalists in prison in Turkey than in any other part of the world. When you think about repressive uh, regimes in the world, that's saying something. So for all these and many other reasons, NATO has to have an internal uh, review about what do they do when a NATO member no longer acts in accordance with the principles of NATO. And I think this is a critical question that the United States, as part of the NATO alliance, needs to bring. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, I, 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 I am deeply concerned that the premise, the beginning of your question, or the preface of your question, is one that alarms me, which is the relative silence by countries in the world who should be rising up, uh, at least with their voices and where appropriate their votes, uh, against what is happening uh, in uh, Artsakh, what can happen to Armenians uh, in the region uh, and in Armenia itself uh, if we continue to turn a blind eye and then Armenia doesn't have the same uh, air force powers, it doesn't have the same military powers as those that are involved in the region um, and uh, between Russia and Turkey and uh, even Azerbaijan uh, has uh, greater military resources. This is, this is uh, you know, potentially an existential threat. 
And so uh, no country that is otherwise peaceful should be in the midst of such an existential threat. The world needs to speak out, and I would hope that the Biden administration will do that when they take office through both the Secretary of State, uh, our newly designated uh, UN ambassador, uh, and others as well. And I'll be asking those questions of these nominees when they appear before me as a senior Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Great. Thank you for that. Um, I don't want to take too much of your time. I just have one last question. You mm-hmm. Right now, what it seems like is that we are waiting for the OSCE men's group to sort of um, jumpstart or restart their process. And you recently said that the men's group uh, appears to be on life support, but they should still be reinvigorated and to restart this process. From where I am and uh, the what I'm reading about it is nothing is being done. Like OSC, we haven't heard from them, period. Is this something we should wait for when President Biden takes office? Well, I mean, uh, there's only one president at a time. I wish President Trump was fully engaged in using the OSC and our, our membership in the Minx group to drive uh, a a peaceful resolution of of the process and and guarantee uh, the human uh, rights of uh, Armenians uh, uh, as well as uh, their sovereignty as a nation. But uh, you know, there's nothing that can be done by an administration that already was largely turned a blind eye to what was happening. Uh, had an increase of arms sales. Uh, to Azerbaijan, and, and I believe in violation of the law because there is a provision that you could only sell to Azerbaijan if they weren't uh, uprooting the balance and were peaceful in their process. Well, there was a rocketing of arms sales under the Trump administration to Azerbaijan. The Secretary of State, Pompeo, signed a series of waivers that attested to that, but we've seen that the Azerbaijanis did everything but be peaceful. And so we have to wait for the next administration uh, to take a different course uh, because uh, there's only one president at a time and President Trump's the president until January 20th. But in the interim, you know, I've had conversations uh, with the French or the French ambassador here uh, in Washington. I think, uh, uh, you know, President Macron uh, had some early strong words and intervention. They are part uh, of the Minsk group, I hope that I would hope that they would lead as the United States gets back to the table, that they would lead in this intercession because, you know, I think time is of the essence. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Okay. Well, Senator Menendez, it was truly an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much. If there's anything I haven't brought up, please uh, let us know if you want to. No, well, I think we've co- we've covered a lot of uh, challenging uh, challenging times, but um, I'll just close on this. I recently saw the movie The Promise, yes. and uh, I had not seen it before, and I remembered of the line that says, uh, "Despite everything that has been done to the Armenians, we are still here." Uh, they will. They are still here, and they will continue to be, as far as I'm concerned. And we will do everything possible to make sure that that's the ultimate result of history. Thank you for that. That was well said. Thank you, Senator. All right. All the best. Cheers. Take care. Bye bye. That was the Honorable Senator Bob Menendez, uh, who is truly one of our uh, most outstanding elected officials. Thank you, Senator, for being on the Blunt Post with Dick. I am going to read you three tweets from three different people and three different topics. 
The first one is from Senator Sanders on the election, its aftermath, and how President Trump is behaving. He said, I don't often agree with Senator Mitt Romney, but in describing the tactics of his GOP colleagues to undermine Joe Biden's victory, he's right when he says, I could never have imagined seeing these things in the greatest democracy in the world. Has ambition so eclipsed principle? The second one is from Congressman Frank Pallone on the federal minimum wage. And he wrote, while it's good to see states across the country boost their minimum wages today, the Senate must cooperate with the House in the next Congress and pass the Raise the Wage Act to enact a federal $15 minimum wage. And the last tweet is from Dan Rather. He wrote, the audio of Trump with the Georgia Secretary of State. Wow, it's like telling Nixon tapes to hold my beer. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jaramie. Uh, both Instagram and Twitter, my handle is at Vic Jaramie. That's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. The Blunt Post with Vic.